global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, SDS Nation? Welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime and have not been this excited for a show in a while, and that is because we have assembled uh, one of the best panels you're going to find anywhere. As a matter of fact, if you can find a better panel anywhere on the cable networks tonight or anywhere else, you let me know and you'll get your money back, even though this is free, but I doubt it's going to happen. As you know by now, uh, New York police, they have cracked a 13-year case, accused Long Island serial killer, Uh, Rex Hurman is now in police custody as authorities continue to comb through the 59-year-old married father of twos. Uh, They're looking through his Massapequa Park home, uh, a tony little neighborhood on Long Island. Of course, Rex Hurman was charged Friday with murder and the deaths of three of the 11 victims whose bodies began to pile up on Suffolk County's Gilgo Beach beginning in 2010. Here to discuss it, the legend herself, Dr. Ann Wolbert Burgess. She's an internationally recognized pioneer in the assessment and treatment of victims of trauma and abuse and the author of A Killer by Design, Murders, Mindhunters, and My Quest to Decipher the Criminal Mind. Uh, former uh, NYPD Sergeant Joe Jacalone, who you're about to meet, just told Ann off air that uh, he read one of her books when he was first getting going. So Ann is the uh, the bedrock for a lot of uh, future uh, uh law enforcement officers. Among her many awards, Anne's, uh, in 2016, she was named a living legend by the American Academy of Nursing, the super successful Netflix show Mindhunter, about the FBI's first days of criminal profiling. It is loosely uh, based on Anne's work, as well as Agent Greg McCrary, the man who looks like an FBI agent with a goatee coming to us. Uh, live, he entered uh, on duty as a special agent with the FBI on December 1st, 1969, I like to remind him I was five months old at the time, uh, but he is, uh, I've aged poorly and Greg has aged very well. Uh, he's been associated with the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime, otherwise known as the NCAVC, since its, its inception in 1985, and he has provided expert witness testimony in homicide and rape trials in North America and Europe, and he's literally written the book on some of uh, uh, this stuff as well. The Unknown Darkness, Profiling the Predators Among Us. He wrote that with Dr. Catherine Ramsland of BTK fame and uh, an all-around great guy. I did a special show called Surviving My Biggest Case uh, with Greg. It is going to be out July 24th next week. He talks about a wild serial killer case that takes you to Austria and Los Angeles. Joe Jacalone, uh, he is a retired NYPD sergeant. Um, and an internationally recognized expert. He's been doing TV for this nonstop over the last uh, several days. He was a commanding officer of the Bronx Cold Case Squad. He's trained investigators from all over the United States and the world, and uh, an all-around great guy, guy, a three-time guest speaker at CrimeCon, and the author of The Criminal Investigative Function, A Guide for New Investigators. And last but not least, Kerry Rawson. In 2005, she heard a knock on the door of her apartment. When she opened it, an FBI agent, it was not Greg McCrary, uh, informed her that her father had been arrested for murdering 10 people, including two children. It was then that she learned that her father was the, the notorious serial killer 
known as BTK, a name he had given himself to describe the horrific way he committed his crimes by buying, torturing, and killing. Everything she had believed about her life had been a lie, and it's all chronicled in the best-selling book, A Serial Killer's Daughter. She's been featured on Dateline and numerous other shows. Um, Thanks to this amazing panel. Thanks to STS Nation. As I said, I personally am very excited for this uh, show. Uh, Joe Jackalone, uh, you arguably know this case better than just about anyone. And by the way, Joe's here for the first 40 minutes. But uh, Rex Hewerman, uh, he is the uh, now accused serial killer. He faces charges of three counts of first-degree murder and three counts of second-degree murder in connections with the slaying of uh, four women. And I'd like to mention them by name tonight, uh, Melissa Bartholomew. Megan Waterman, Amber Costello, and Maureen Brainerd Barnes. Their remains were discovered near Gilgo Beach in 2010. All four worked as online escorts and had been missing some of them since 2007. Uh, Joe, when you got the news that there was an arrest made, your initial reaction? Well, just like everybody else, I was kind of taken back because this case has been kind of dragged around for about uh, 10 or 11 years and considering the political environment that we saw in Suffolk County or the arrest of the police chief sent to prison, the arrest of the district attorney and sent to prison. I mean, you name it, this, this, this case had everything that you could imagine that could go wrong. And there was a lot of things uh, in the background. I mean, when you, when you take a look at it, it you, you can't believe how fast they were able to put this all together. So it was kind of exciting. Uh, and, and Joe, we're going to get into that because some, some people are going to say to Joe Jacqueline, what the hell took him so long? Uh, these investigations can take many years. Uh, do you have a comment about that? Can you elaborate as well about uh, some of the political, the inner workings going on in Suffolk County that may have stymied this investigation? Um, did it happen quickly? Should it have, should it have happened faster? Uh, that's a journalist in me asking that question. Well, I'll take that into two parts, right? So the telephone uh, and the digital evidence, they've had that all along, right? So it just, it took this individual in the New York State Police that we heard about today uh, in order to put it together. So they had that information, they just didn't have anybody to crack it because they didn't have a task force, right? We we saw that then police chief James Burke uh, got rid of the FBI. He kind of kept this whole thing to himself, which caused all kinds of speculation about him and his involvement. And it's, it really kind of gotten things off the rails. And then with his own legal troubles, I think things kind of then descended downhill with the case in regards to that. So, you know, here we are, fast forward, 11 years later, we have new leadership, right? So you have Chief Rodney Harrison uh, become the police chief out in Suffolk County, and then you have Ray Tierney get elected to district attorney. So both of these men came on board about a year and a half ago, and they both publicly pledged in their initials statements that they were going to take this case seriously, and it was going to be priority number one. And now here we are. 18 months later, so, and and here we have an arrest. So these these guys really kept to their word, and it goes to show you when you have the correct leadership and you have individuals who are willing to put their neck out on the line, so to speak, then, you know, think, think about how this could have backfired, right? You, you come into an office and you say, hey, I'm going to solve this, and if you don't solve it, that goes on your epitaph, so to speak, and your whole thing. So they, we got to give them a lot of credit for putting this task force together, bringing in the state police, bringing in the FBI, bringing in the NYPD, bringing in every available uh, law enforcement agency that they can help. And, you know, I think their fruits of their labor have is showed what, what just happened a couple of days ago. 
And uh, you guys know I'm a, originally a Jersey guy. I work for the Fox flagship in New York. And, uh, man, I feel at home listening to Joe talk, that fast-talking New Yorker. Uh, Sorry. Kind of <laughs> Skipping those R's periodically. I love it. I love it. Um, Ann Burgess, uh, the great Dr. Ann Burgess, Cynthia Keith. I absolutely love Dr. Ann. She's my all-time favorite nurse. Um were you following this case closely? I mean, this is your business. And uh, were, what was your reaction uh, when you got the news uh, about this arrest as well? Right. Well, I was, um, I followed it earlier, of course, uh, but not as, as recently. So I was just thrilled when they got it. I had been following the profile. So I'm going to be anxious to see what Greg has to say about how the profiles were back then and, and what would have been added. Um, they got some things right, but uh, the profiling, the patterns, I think the patterns impressed me in terms of where the victims were found. There was, and I understand just four have been identified as, um, as um, part of this current suspect, but they're all in a clustering. It's like a cluster that certainly has some kind of significance for him. If we want to look at any of the psychology that may be operating uh, because of one of the things when we looked at the 36 serial killers back in the 90s, that it was patterns and motive. That's what we tried to focus on. And that might be kind of good to talk about what do we think was motive in this. Um, and certainly the pattern. Uh, I thought the uh, bodies were very clearly patterned, and what he did was quite patterned. They might even had a signature. Greg might want to comment on that if he thinks that was present. And uh, we're going to get to him uh, in just one moment. There is so much to cover here. So I'm hoping, uh, again, uh, Joe's got to take off at 40 after the hour, but hopefully Kerry, Ann, and Greg will stay on for uh, substantially longer to get through a lot of this. Uh, flyover Girl, we're going to get to this as well. I'm ter terrified to find out what's in that storage unit. Uh, anyone else feeling the same? Uh, authorities, law enforcement is going through a storage unit. Uh, out on Long Island, uh, feel free to support the show by coming, becoming a YouTube member, as Lucky Lou did, or on Patreon. We've always got amazing guests. This happens to be more amazing uh, than usual. Ashley uh, echoing the sentiments. What a wonderful surprise to see Joel and his best guest. I'm stoked. Uh, so am I. Uh, Greg McCrary, um, again, all four women here had worked as online escorts. They've been missing between 2007 and 2010. Their bodies were found along a half-mile stretch of Ocean Parkway in Long Island. Um, but there are 11 sets of human remains, including, which I want to talk to you about, a toddler and a possible male or transgender Asian male. Mm -hmm. um, you were looking at the profiling early on. Were the profilers right? Uh, did you profile this yourself? What did you anticipate? Um, I certainly looked at the case early on. <clears throat> Uh, but again, um, I'm always cautious because I'm on the outside, not on the inside. So I only know what's in the media. So, uh, And that can be misleading sometimes because any good investigation has holdback information that they don't uh, give to the public. So I'm always cautious about trying to profile too much just based on, on what's in the uh, uh, what's in the release and what's released in the media. But as far as the pattern, I, I agree. I agree with Ann. I agree with Joe. Uh, this whole idea of solving this thing um, in cases like this depend on having a functional uh, multi-agency task force that works together. And that was the problem early on, is, as Joe alluded to, that um, uh, 
James Burke didn't want the FBI involved because he was under federal investigation at the time and the whole thing never, never gelled. But under the new leadership, they got the task force together and uh, each agency bring its own expertise and boom, March 2022. Um, and here we are just a, not all that long later uh, and that much later and, and we got the guy. But getting back to the patterns, similar victimology, uh, types of victims, petite female sex workers, uh, all contacted by burner phones before their disappearance. Of course, the bodies are dumped in the same area. They're missing clothing, clothing, personal items, which could well be trophies or souvenirs. And again, the search that's going on may uh, may uh, be able to identify those. Uh, bodies are similarly positioned, uh, bound in a similar manner, uh, either belts or tape. Three of the four were wrapped in burlap uh, bag-type clothing. Uh, and cells of two of the victims were used to uh, by the killer uh, after their deaths to taunt their families. So there's a clear pattern um, here of behavior um, uh, that, that links these crimes together behaviorally. And then, of course, we get into the DNA evidence later that, um, again, now we got forensic evidence link, linking the things together. But to me, I think we're going to find this is a, a guy not unlike some of the other serial killers we've seen, um, leading, um, having compartmentalized his life living on one hand a seemingly normal life out there. He's an architect and doing business and so forth and working, you know, with his business and colleagues. And then the second uh, life that he's carrying on at the, the same time, but able to compartmentalize these things and keep them, uh, you know, keep them apart. Uh, there seems to be sadistic qualities to this. Um, again, I haven't seen the crime scene. I don't know exactly what happened to the, um, to the victims, but certainly torturing the families, psychologically torturing the families, calling them, bragging about killing, uh, uh, you know, killing their, um, killing their loved ones. Um, you know, very, very psychopathic, very sadistic. And um, matter of fact, uh, we talked about the Unterweger case uh, here recently. Jack did the same thing. He used the victim's phone to call her family and to taunt them as well. So we've seen this uh, sort of behavior in these more sadistic type of killers. And we'll uh, kind of break that down a little further. But yes, um, Greg came on and talked about an infamous serial killer from Austria named Jack Unterweger. If you Google a photo of this guy, you sort of won't believe what you're looking at because he's straight out of central casting for uh, – uh, a gigolo style serial killer. That's the best mm -hmm. way I could put it. Um, Kerry Rawson to you. Um, sadly, uh, you know what uh, the families are going through uh, tonight, both the victims families. Uh, it's been a long time coming to get word about an arrest, but also uh, Rex Huerman, the accused serial killer here, a married architect of two, his daughter even worked for him at his architecture firm, we are told his son, and it might be his stepchildren, uh, is a special needs child. Um, but can you just speak to what is going on uh, with the victims, both um, you know those who were brutally murdered, as well as the other victims who are the family of the suspect? Um, yeah, I definitely can, and I would like to loop back and to like separate out the um, Gilgo Beach murders, the three plus Maureen who were waiting for indictment on from the other victims um i think greg and joe and ann can help there um just because we're still waiting to find out if rex is the suspect on the other ones they just have a different mo um different like decomp um some of them were just dis disembarred so like 
there's just different issues with those. And I think it's important. I'm trying to stress when I'm doing media, like right now we need to separate those out because everyone had sort of lumped all of them together in the Long Island serial killer. And I think we need to focus, you know, okay, we've got the four hair with Giggle Beach and then where, where else are we going? Because I, I think we all know this is probably going to blow up. Um, so we'll get back to that. But in regards to like his family, um, it's just utter terror and madness. I mean, your life is completely upended. Um, I'm hoping they got to the family and got them some warning or got them somewhere safe before media blew up Friday morning. Um, we had about we had about a day of warning so they got to us they arrested my dad kept that quiet uh, interviewed us and then said the media is coming so they basically warned us and then uh, there was a press conference the next day and then media was at our door the next day after that but in Wichita they were at people's doors really quickly like after the press conference so from like a family standpoint the first days you're just dealing with shock um, I know I was trying to alibi my dad. Um, I actually turned him in then on Mrs. Hedge on 85, our neighbor. Um, I was six when she was murdered. So you're going back and forth. Like, you know, right away we were hearing about Rex's wife, um, traveling. So you're, th that information is coming out of investigations, but it's also coming out of interviews, um, with the family. So like you're going through trauma but you're being interviewed like very particular down to like dates um, quickly from law enforcement because they're trying to rule you out. Um, I, my family was cleared very quickly. I, it seems like Rex's family has been too, but I know there's a lot of misconceptions right now with her DNA. So one of my roles right now is trying to like speak up for the family and speak up for the misconceptions, but you're never gonna, um, you're never gonna get everybody on board like in the fact lands and, and we're going to get to the uh the dna evidence and some of uh rex sherman's wife's hairs were found on the victims which is uh poignant in and of itself we will get there uh drew baker saying hello from Kerry's old hometown uh wichita kansas which is where btk <clears throat> uh wreaked a lot of his havoc joe jack alone in my notes i say make sure you ask joe about the politics of the case which you just sort of uh, debriefed us on, but also, um, look, your NY, former NYPD, this is Suffolk County Police. <clears throat> what goes into, what, what was kind of the backstory of forming, as you understand it, this task force, and how did they kind of break out from the pack to really, you know, hunker down, bear down, and get the work done to get this guy? Well, it's probably one of those things where you have to just find the right people, right? So we know about uh, personality conflicts. We know about, you know, issues between agencies. They have to find the right people in order to do this. And it's part of my old job as the cold case commander. We had, you know, different kind of task forces set up. We had our own serial killer cases and those kind of things. And we worked with Yonkers and we worked with the FBI and we did all those things. It's about having the right person in place and being able to just put all of those other issues aside, like I'm gonna solve this case, it's all about me. And I think that's what we saw in previous administrations. And then all of a sudden we saw uh, that dynamic change and we saw a change into this 
we're going to we are going to solve this case together and we are going to find out exactly what happened and we are going to get to the bottom of this and if you listen to the press conference it was it was a lot of wheeze and banking other agencies and those kind of things it really wasn't uh, a show of hey i'm the greatest just ask me so it, it was actually a nice uh breath of fresh air that you, you dealt with in, in regards to it. But like I said, I mean, you have a former NYPD chief of detectives, former chief of department running the show out there. And you have Ray Tierney who had a lot of experience, you know, prosecuting cases too. And a lot of people don't understand that the district attorney plays a central role in, in these cold cases. They are the ones that have to, you know, you have to dot the I's and cross the T's as investigators. You have to present them a prosecutable case. And the district attorneys are the ones that have to really, they have, they're the ones that ultimately have to prosecute these cases, and they, they, they will issue the search warrants and the subpoenas and everything else. And you work together in this type of environment where you, as the investigators, provide what the DA needs. Uh, lest anyone think we are not a global show, Marina uh, watches us from hot Spain. I thought she was going to say, I don't know what to think anymore, but she says, I don't know what to drink anymore because it is boiling hot. And this is a first for STS Nation, as far as I know, <laughs> Genevieve Stone. Hello from the North Pole, Alaska, uh, right next to Santa Claus, I guess. Um, Dr. Ann Burgess and Greg McCrary, I want to get your take on this. You guys were already talking about profiling and patterns of behavior. But, Ann, uh, we know 11 sets of human remains were found, uh, but there was either a male or a transgender Asian man as well as a toddler. Um, that sort of trips up the, uh, the puzzle a little bit. It breaks up. Uh, the pattern, what do you make of that? What, who are these people and why are they there? Right. Well, the transgender is very interesting. Uh, we don't know whether it was uh, male to female, and that was what uh, kind of tricked the uh, suspect. And he got angry or something. I mean, that would be one theory. You have to look at some other theories of how the person was just at the wrong place at the right time, so to speak. And, and that's what happened. But the toddler... Uh, belong to the transgender, I assume, right? Or we don't know. We don't know that. The, the um, toddler belongs to Peaches, who was found in 1997 in Hempstead Lake State Park. Her torso, yeah, she was she was dismembered, and she had the, the tattoo of a pair of peaches that was kind of scratched off. The person who killed her didn't want her identified. Okay, and the toddler belonged to her. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And she's okay. not identified yet. And not identified, but was she also transgender? Mm-mm. No, not the transgender. So we don't know on the transgender, who is just uh, now I understand as a single person, that it was um, he he thought she was fem- he was female, and that was something that enraged him, and he killed. We don't know, but I do think that that's what's interesting about that aspect of it. The other uh, talking about the pattern of the victims, they were very small. The four that were were fairly small and he's a very large man so i think that's interesting of of um whatever that meant to him and who they represent whether this is just a displacement onto someone that had been in his life and he was very angry at i think they all were uh, certainly fairly small and um the the lore of course was their work and I do remember reading that some, one of them was yelling, um, help, call the call 911 saying, help, help, they're after me or he's after me. He's going to kill me. And then that was the last that was heard. So that one almost got away. 
Um, unfortunately, we, we don't know which one it was, but at any rate, there was something that happened in, uh, and went wrong. I always, you always look for, does something go wrong in their lure and then their attempt to gain control? Have to have control of the, of the victims. Um, I think the other interesting thing is, again, only reported in the media, is that he, the wife was away. Wife and kids, I think, is the way it was stated, was away when some of these murders, they think, happened. Now, maybe not all of them, but that would be something about what was that all about and where did he take them to, where did he lure them? Did he take them to his house or did he take it back to their house? You know, that that would all make very interesting to kind of put more of the pieces together. Yeah, and uh, I know that in uh, the commission of at least three of the crimes, I believe cell phone records show that his wife, uh, was out of town with the children. Um, going to get to this comment in a moment, but Greg, to you and your expertise, uh, again, you were talking about patterns, mm-hmm. 11 sets of human remains, but one is this transgender uh, Asian person and the other is a toddler. Uh, how does that fit into your uh, profiling and your, uh, you know, your, your supposition of what may have happened here? This is always an issue with a serial case which are linked and which are not. Um, you know, I worked a serial murder case um, up in Rochester, New York, where the victims, all but one, were prostitutes. But there were other prostitutes who were killed that were not part of the series. So how do you sort that out? How do you make the connection? That's the challenge uh, a lot of time. And that's exactly what the task force will be challenged with. And, and I think it's worth, worth noting that while the arrest is certainly, um, you know, a, um, a big uh, development in the case, um, this is, it really marks the phase of the next, uh, the next phase of this investigation, which will be uh, twofold. One, to um, determine whether these other cases may or may not be linked to him. Uh, and then secondly, do we really think he just started killing people in his 40s? Um, no, I mean, I would, uh, be happy to bet a dollar on, on Greg, that. How far, Greg, how far back do you think his killings go? When do you think these started? Mid twenties. It could go back. Yeah. It could go no back twenties, late teens, 20. It's just hard, hard to say, but what the task force is going to do this next phase of the investigation is doing all of that timelining this guy going back, uh, to his teenage years, his twenties, his thirties. Where was he? Uh, do we have uh, unsolved homicides that can be linked to him? Uh, you know, in those cases, where were his travels? Where did he go? He, I, I heard that he had like camps or something upstate New York. Okay, anything going on up there? Um, and and then all of his travels. Uh, any anybody missing? Does he go to Vegas? Are there dead hookers in Vegas? I mean. All that's got to be sorted out. So this this is just the beginning of the next phase uh, of an ongoing investigation. And we're going to get to that next phase. Uh, Joe Jacalone, former NYPD sergeant, tough guy, bald head, mean looking. Uh, what I love is that he's got to leave us in 10 minutes because his wife's yeah. going to yell at him. So I feel that much better knowing that uh, he's in the same boat as me. But uh, Joe, to you, Daniel, uh, Danielle, Ashley, I hope they search that house and rip it down to the last nail, the search for spots in the house where he might be hiding things. They've taken out some weird stuff, which we'll get into again. But what is going on on the ground right now? They are searching his home. 
why are they in hazmat suits? They're also in a storage area. Um, I had Detective Phil Waters on my show. I have him on every Friday. He investigated over 400 uh, homicides for the Houston PD. It says a lot of time you're wearing those hazmat suits to protect the evidence, not to protect you. Um, why are they in those suits? What are they doing? Well, the Tyvek suits are about protecting the evidence in there, looking for blood evidence, hair follicles, trace evidence, those kind of things. So they're wearing the mask, the respirators, and the whole thing. Plus, the house is in disrepair, too. So there might be some other health issues at play. Uh, so they got to make sure that they keep the investigators safe while they're doing this, too. And if you notice that they have uh, some of the trucks that have pulled up, so the forensics teams, the medical examiners, the anthropologists um, are, are all there. And then concurrently, they're doing another search at a storage facility that he has. And then the, the unique thing I saw, I think it was, I think the Ashley was either a first name or a last name. She had asked a question about the, the storage facility. The interesting part of that is the Emmy, Emmy didn't come until a couple of hours later, right? So unless this person was not available, unless the medical examiner was not available, or they discovered something in there that required the assistance of a medical examiner. And uh, when I when I first you know heard about it, I said, well, if the anthropologist shows up next, then we know exactly what we have. But uh, it, it's just an interesting tidbit. It could be just that the Emmy was busy with something else. But, but Joe, did, does the Emmy showing up necessarily mean that they're finding uh, uh, some part of a human body in there? Is well, that- the, there's only one reason that you would have the medical examiner come, right? But in, in, in our, my experience, when we were doing a, a, a dig or something, a cold case dig where we were looking for a human remains, we always, we always had either the medical examiner or a medical legal investigator with us at the start of it. Uh, including an anthropologist, because you, un, when you're doing a dig specifically, you end up uncovering a lot of bones, depending on how far you go down, because, you know, uh, we, we, sometimes you can find things like arrowheads and, and that kind of thing. So you need to have the anthropologist there. Now, when you're inside of a storage facility, you're not digging holes, but if you find something and you're trying to figure out if it's human or animal, then it's important to have uh, the anthropologist there. Um, and Joe, back to the task force here, um, this is really, um, I mean, it's a cliche, but it's the truth. This is now the beginning of the investigation in earnest. Um, how do they sort of divvy up the work? How's it all handled at this point? Is there, you know, a lead task force agent that says, you look here, you look there, we're going to check old phone records? I mean, how's it all broken down? Well, from the experience that I've had working with task forces, you pick the best people to do specific jobs. So you pick somebody who is good at running databases. You pick somebody who's good at interviewing people. You pick somebody who's good at, uh, you know, uh, interrogating a suspect. So these are all the different people that you're looking for in your task force. And when you saw the amount of electronic evidence and digital evidence and forensic evidence, you have to have experts for each one of those things. So we're not looking for generalists per se in certain aspects. There is a time and a place for generalists, of course. But when you're dealing with a, with, a, with a microcosm, let's call it, of a case where you're zoned in on somebody in particular, you need to have those specialists. And I think that's exactly what shined through uh, in this moment. And uh, misdemeanor, uh, Joe Jackalow might not be happy to read this comment. Uh, you're amazing, Joel. Two shows in one day. Tuning in from Long Island, riding my bike past Gilgo Beach all the time. Uh, we don't know. You heard Greg McCrary say uh, there are 11 sets of human remains. We don't know the extent of the links yet so uh, you might want to reconsider that route uh carrie back to you um when you hear these stories with your own personal experience um and you've been very open about dealing with uh post-traumatic stress and trauma does it re-traumatize you in a way to now know that there's another family 
just like yours. Um, and some people are going to yell and say, who cares about Huberman's family? family? But you know what? They're human beings. They're innocent in this, uh, we assume. Um, but does it re-traumatize you uh, to hear these stories? Um, it does. And I'll answer that, but then I got to follow up for, for Joe um, before he leaves us. Um, uh, yeah. So on Friday, um, I was actually sleeping in. Um, I'm, I'm a night owl. So the rest of you are all up dealing with the news and my phone's blowing up while I'm asleep. And I woke up and I was being pinged. <laughs> I think I got the LISK and I was like, holy crap. Because like I don't I don't know the cases very well, but there's like this myth and this legend behind this one, right? Like it's this huge thing. And you're like, that was never gonna be solved, which is kind of funny coming from like BTK's kid, but like I was like my mind was blown. And then like you hear about his family and my like heart was ripping. And so for me, like you're elated for like the families, the victims' families, and investigators. Like the decades are putting into this, that we got another really bad creeper off the streets. But then you're, I'm instantly in trauma land. So I'm like trying to now keep up with what's going on with the breaking news, trying to learn about the investigation, trying to learn about the victims, juggling media. Um, and, and trying to remind myself to eat and drink water. So like, like Saturday was not pleasant over here. Um, but I'm doing better now. So from a trauma standpoint, it's 18 years past my father's arrest and I'm still literally managing PTSD every day of my life. Um, my follow-up for Joe was about Shannon Gilbert, um, because Anne, Anne mentioned her, like, with the, the ones that we don't know yet to Rex, like, there is so much backstory on that one. Like, you know, she, she called in, like, for help, and they were initially looking for her when they found all these other bodies. But it doesn't necessarily sound like she was maybe tied to Rex. It's just there's, like, this most insane levels of rabbit holes. I don't even begin to know where to start with that stuff. Yeah, the Shannon Gilbert case. Without Shannon Gilbert, you don't have a Long Island serial killer case, right? Because she was in the Oak Beach uh, community that night. She was uh, hired by one of the individuals that was living in the location. And then something went terrible, terribly wrong. So she left running from the house saying that they're trying to kill me. She was knocking on doors and people answered the doors. People called the police. And here's where the problems really started, right? So there was video surveillance at the booth of where the cars have to come in which was never secured. And there was a couple of other things. Like, so one of the things I've always asked is who was the first officer on the scene? We've never heard. We never had an answer about that. Like, so that first officer on the scene, we often say makes or breaks the case. Well, anyway, she ran into the thicket of uh, weeds and, 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 you know, bramble, I think they refer to it as, and it's very, very thick. And she was later found a, a few months later. So, and she, she died. Now there was other issues that her clothes and her cell phone were in one place and her body was found in another. And, you know, people say that, you know, the Suffolk County Police Department said that she she died of a, an accidental drowning. And, you know, it kind of, you know, scratched your head in a lot of ways. Um, Dr. Bodden, if you, I'm sure everyone knows who he is, has said that she, she was possibly murdered and strangled. So there's a whole bunch of issues that we dealt with in the very beginning of this case. And then, you know, Suffolk County then started working on the case with the cadaver dogs, and that's how they stumbled upon the original Gilgo 4. 
Uh, Lutz here says a couple of my regular lives are running, but Ann Burgess persuaded me to be here. Absolute legend. If you are watching another show right now, uh, and I don't say this because I host my show, I say because I feel. <laughs> yep. So yeah, we were warned about this, right? <laughs> we just lost him right at that moment. Um, why? Why he's off, Joe? Can you tell us uh, before you have to go? Do you think all of these other ones are? Rexus or like well, where, it, where are you at there? Well, it's originally I was a firm believer in that this was a one person serial killer. And the reason is, I mean, I grew up on Long Island. I lived there practically my whole life, know the area very well. And it is a remote area that only a Long Islander would really know about. And to have, you know, and I'm listening, you have two people on the panel that are more knowledgeable about this than I would. I, I don't, recall trying to find a ser two serial killers operating within the same location, basically doing the same thing and using it as a dumping ground. So I, I, I'm, I think it's going to be very difficult moving forward. I think people need to be patient because we don't have the digital evidence on those cases. And we probably don't have the forensic evidences because remember they date back as far as 1996. So it was still in the, in the really early ages of DNA and everything else that was going on. So uh, and, you know, how it was stored and how it was, was secured, all all our issues. But right now, I think the Maureen Brainard Barnes is, is job number one, tying her to Rex. And then once that gets done, then maybe he's willing to uh, talk about maybe some of the other cases and help out if he's involved at all. Who knows? I mean, we don't have the we have the death penalty in New York State. I don't think we'll ever use it. So it's hard to hold something like that over somebody's head. And by the way, I love the fact that Kerry Rawson jumps right in as I get bounced out. I'm not in my usual spot, and I think I've been doing too many uh, alien UF UFO shows, and now they're they're getting Just, to me, kicking me off. <clears throat> Chelsea Whitaker, <clears throat> excuse me, I always echo this sentiment. Kerry, you are so much more than just BTK's kid. That is for damn sure. Uh, she's a real advocate for victims and a student of uh, – uh, criminology in her own right. Um, back to Ann and Greg, to you. Uh, so we know these um, searches are ongoing at the home. Uh, there was a locked door in the basement, and law enforcement got in there, found nearly 300 guns, some framed pictures. There was a very creepy doll that was glass encased uh, that they've taken from the home. Um, and I believe they're even digging around the backyard. Um, what do you make of the fact that he had this amazing arsenal of weapons? Does it mean anything, or is he just a gun collector, Ann? Well, it certainly means something, but I don't think any of the victims were shot. Do I have that on or right? Uh, wasn't it more strangulation? Yeah, so yeah. the guns had to been there for some other reason, and they, I, I would imagine law enforcement is going to track that down. That he, was he a uh, gun collector that's one thing but what did he do with the guns what type of guns were they did he have ammunition with them but i i'm interested in you said there was a doll in a yeah. um a creepy doll um not sure what <laughs> it's uh it's like an older antique looking doll that's uh in a glass casing maybe two feet uh joe might be able to describe it better but even here chelsea whitaker uh, my question about the doll, was it out in the open, on display, or on display somewhere only he would see it? Joe, do we know the answer to that? I don't think we do. 
Yeah, we don't know exactly where it comes from, but it was like it looks like in a piece of furniture. So it was, you know, it was like a glass box around it, but it had wood around it and it had legs on it too. So it was something probably you put it up against the wall. Nothing that my wife would allow at a decor, right? I'm not, I'm not even allowed to touch the decorative towels for crying out loud. So, um, well, yeah, that's that's a fate worse than death. But you know, it is what it is. But yeah, and it's um, it is. I mean, there's no other word than creepy. But people pointed out to me. Uh, so his second wife he's married to, um, she is a, has nothing to do with this, but she's an avid comic book uh, collector. She goes to comic book conventions. Um, it doesn't say anything about her being a doll collector, but does the doll stand out to you in a weird way? Yes, I would think that it's kept. Um, I do understand he did some furniture making or he worked with tools. He could have made that, uh, that it's symbolic. I would be interested in that and that he's preserving it and that it's creepy is good because it means something to him. Obviously not. The, I think the other thing is, was it a family kind of a thing? He did have the daughter who it might've been the daughters. Um, but we always, from a more psychological standpoint, want to look at what triggered all of this, um, this killing. And does it go back to something in which a doll was, was part of? Oh, that would be certainly something we want to check on. I'm also interested, he, he would be what we would call high social competence, not low social competence on a serial killer because he worked, he had gone to school, he had a family. So on one level, he was able to keep things together. But then when does he deteriorate? So that kind of what, what Greg was talking about, he's very two, two lives to him or... Um, Something happens that will trigger the killings, and the timeline is going to be really, really important. Uh, I think Greg mentioned you want to look carefully at the dates and when things happen, what was going on in his life. I do understand the father died when he was about eleven or twelve. Maybe that had something. You know, you, you try to put all of these things together. He has a brother. I don't know if he's older or younger. Uh, what's the relationship there? Sometimes. Uh, and he was, would, if he father died of, when he's 11, that meant that the mother was going to be the primary caretaker. What did that mean to him? How does she treat him vis-a-vis the brother? Um, various things like that. And Joe, I know you're on the clock. Yep. You have to, I have to go. Joe, nice, say, hi to, say hi to the wife. Nice meeting you, everybody. And just to quote, just to, if anybody wants to read a great book, you got to read Sexual Homicide by Ann Burgess and Robert Ressler. And that was one of the, my seminal books that got me involved in this whole thing many moons ago. So that's my, my plug Joe, for you, Ann. Joe, promise me one thing. You're going to come back on as a guest, not just on this case, but other cases. Anytime. You guys right. take care. Nice meeting you all. I have Thanks, to go, though, because she's going to kill me. We'll <laughs> <laughs> have to solve it. Yeah. Um, um, Greg, I can back. say more about the doll too when when we get back. Okay. Yeah, let's let's circle back to that. I just want to get Greg's take. So, Greg, uh, same question to you. Uh, law enforcement got into this locked door in the basement. It was locked, which I don't know what that tells you from your perspective. Uh, an arsenal of nearly three hundred weapons, framed pictures, and this childlike doll. Um, I don't know if you've seen the photo, Greg. It is very creepy. It's glass encased. It's um, almost like an antique looking doll dressed up in antique-ish, oldish looking clothes. Mm -hmm. um, something that I would not want my own children to have because it would scare the crap out of me. Uh, right. What do you make of all this, if anything? Well, um, again, we have to be careful of trying to overmind read these guys. We really don't know. But uh, by the same token, if this is his and it's there and he's kept it, 
and it's in a storage area over which he has control along with the guns. This could be significant to him. And, we, you know, we don't really know why at this point, but it's one of those things that uh, we say needs to be further investigated. And, and let me go back uh, for a moment to are the other um, bodies along Gilgo Beach, are they disordered? Um, it's important uh, in investigations that we don't start with a conclusion that they are or they are not and then work backwards to try and prove it. We get involved in confirmation bias and things that lead investigators astray. So it's very important to be objective. And, um, you know, we may not know. I mean, we may never get a uh, an answer for sure, but uh, we don't want to start out saying, no, they're not related, or yeah, they definitely are. Uh, you know, we, we just need to be objective so that we don't lose focus and, and get misdirected in this thing. Um, Greg, yeah. He was described as being Rex Schurman was, who, by the way, is about six foot six in every direction. He's a massive guy. But he was described in court as being kind of arrogant. He was described that way out of court as well. Um, I assume they're obviously, you know, interviewing him. Um, do you think he's the kind of guy, from what you know about him at this point, who's going to talk, who's going to open up, or is he going to try to play the police? Uh, he's going to play hardball right now. <clears throat> There are different types of guys. Another um, uh, serial killer that uh, um, names slips uh, slips right now. He uh, he was arrested on Long Island um, with uh, a body in the trunk uh, in the back of his truck, and they sat down and he immediately confessed to seventeen uh, Rifkin, Joel Rifkin, uh, confessed to seventeen murders right then. Just laid it all out. Uh, he, Rex is not that kind of guy. Um, he may, he'll play the police. I think he's, he's denying anything right now. Okay, fine. Um, but the case, as we can see, even what's in the public, this is a really tight case. Um, it's circumstantial, but it's so tight and it's, it's so strong. And we don't even know all there is to know, uh, you know, at this point about the, the strength of the case. Uh, he may um, try to negotiate um, uh, some deal that he'll give up He'll do a confession and maybe give up some other bodies or some other things if they give him a break of some sort. <clears throat> so something like that, if it's in his own interest, he might do something. But uh, he's going to play hardball for, for a while until he knows exactly what the police know and uh, see if he can leverage that in some way. That would be my, my, my best assessment right now. And, Anne, uh, for being such a massive hulking guy, uh, the reports are that as he was arrested, and there's video of him being arrested uh, in Midtown Manhattan, there is architectural office. Um, he began to cry and immediately blurted out, I did not do this. Um, is that what you'd expect from a person like this? Well, that is interesting that he cried. Um, I haven't had many, maybe Greg has had more than that, but it could be just theater. It could be drama. Uh, You'd, you'd need to talk to somebody that was right there to see how genuine it was uh, that he got caught. It doesn't sound like that because, listen, he, he was torturing some of the families by calling up and saying, um, haven't they caught the um, Long Island killer yet? And things like that. So it, it's a, it's his communication with the, with the families is really, I think, quite interesting. I know you're talking about a case before. We only had a couple, as I remember, Greg, in the serial killer. Mm -hmm. We had the, um, well, actually goes back to Meyerhoff was the one, but it was always communication 
media, to the media rather than to the families. But some of the agents, I mean, Ressler worked a lot with trying to draw out the killer on the on the phone. So media communication is is quite interesting, and, and this is a case that has it there. We need to really watch and see if we can learn from that. But uh, the crying, I don't. Uh, uh, doesn't sound like he would. Uh, doesn't sound like he'd be a crybaby kind of thing. Or maybe that's going to be his uh, new nickname. <laughs> um, we're having a little audio issue, so I'm just going to keep you guys muted myself, and, unless you're talking. But Carrie, uh, this next question uh, back to you. Um, by the way, Bebop says, uh, in light of what Greg was sort of highlighting, I just find it so hard to believe two different people use the same dumping ground. Uh, Greg wants to get in on that. Uh, go ahead, Greg. No, uh, yeah, I understand. Uh, I, I understand that. But keep in mind, um, I worked in New York City for a number of years. Um, it's obviously, obviously very densely populated. There aren't that many areas where you could dump a body uh, in in a rural kind of a setting, so that may be attractive to other uh, other folks as well. Uh, otherwise, you're dumping it in somebody else's backyard or along a freeway or something. So it's uh, you know becomes uh, difficult to dispose of a body uh, without being seen or detected in in an area uh, like New York City. So this this remote area, all brambles and brush, and uh, you know may be attractive to other folks trying to, uh, to dispose of a body. I'm just saying we got to be objective, look at it both ways, look at the evidence and where the evidence leads, that's that's where we'll go. Uh, Carrie, I know you wanted to circle back on the doll, and I'm curious to hear about that, your take on that creepy doll. Um, well, with the doll, so my question was, it's it's large, Anne and Greg, um, hopefully we can pull up a photo or you can see it after this, but it, it's it's probably two feet tall, if not larger. Um, my father did this. So he built, well, for his dead drops in the era of communication, he used Barbies and he actually bondaged them to match like his, his crime scenes. Um, Cause Rex and my dad are the same stranglers bondage, um, that kind of things. But Rex is very big on burial. Um, my dad was not, he left most of them in the home and then he discarded two, moved them around to change his MO. Um, so there's something with Rex with burial, with the, the burial shrouds. And when you're talking about his father, like, that's a question to me, like, was he impacted? Like, how did his father die? I didn't know that. Like there could be major impact. There's something to do with burial with this guy, with these four, um, that's why I'm not sure on the other ones because he took such special care on the four to, to wrap them and bury them and you'd be precise with his architectural space. Why, why would he have just discarded the other ones so haphazardly unless he was just adapting and ch changing to modern tech techniques, although some of them are older. So that's all questions to me. I just really don't know on the other ones. Um, with the doll, she's just, she's got long blonde hair and she's dressed in kind of like a, like a blue cauliflower dress and then she's got flowers like she's holding flowers like she's dead like somebody's memorialized her with flowers and then she's got a red bow in her head and so my instant question was is there a victim of his of the four or the other ones that looks like her 
because again, with my father, um, if you go look at his Polaroids, his bondage drawings, my father was constantly recreating crimes, fantasizing. But a lot of what we're finding is he's re- he was recreating crimes down to taking victims' clothes and then putting them on other victims and then taking Polaroids, um, creating series of photos. And so is was Rex recreating some sort of crime, memorializing one of his victims in that doll? And then there's always these questions, okay, it's glass encased. Is, is there human remains in the doll? Is, is there something hidden, some kind of crime in the doll, the way they were very carefully carrying it out? He's a carpenter. Did he build the case? Like Greg said, we don't know who the doll belongs to, but like seriously, they're going to be like totally checking that doll. And then another thing that developed yesterday was I found out through my own sources is back in around 2012, somebody put dolls around this size about two feet tall on each of the four graves and there's photos of them and they were retrieved um by like advocates and sent to the um, police there in the county and they've had them since then and reddit is saying that these dolls belonged like were connected to like car car like where you get together to see car shows and these, these dolls, they have a name. Maybe somebody will say in the chat, I'm losing my, the name of them, but they have a name and somebody had displayed four dolls overnight, like literally walked through brush to put these dolls specifically on the, on the grave markers and had displayed them so that one has stuffing in its mouth and one was standing up and they each were displayed and like Maureen's hands are over. So for someone to do that, was that Rex recreating the crimes? Because those things could be things we don't even know publicly. And what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And I think that I hope they have photos of that because it sounds like he, he is revisiting the grave that we know happens a lot sometimes they move the body we don't know how were they uh, buried very deeply that they could have been moved but certainly made a little a kind of a, a memorial to them and uh that could have been his ritual that could have been part of his fantasy that that's what we haven't really looked at you can kind of piece it together a little bit if we have more information on on the victims but i think carrie i think that's fascinating i hadn't heard is that been uh, just put into the um, public domain. Um, the, really- the, the dolls were known like it's public domain. Um, an advocate friend of mine brought it up that knows this case real well. Um, yeah. They've been talking about it on Reddit, and the, the photos are public, so I can email yeah. them to you, even if you're if you would if you want to see great. them. Yeah, I'm to you and Greg. Um, my guess is more is going to be coming out, and I'll I'll get you a photo of that new doll. Um, because as soon as soon as we saw crime scene texts bring out that the 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 doll in the case, people were bringing up this recreation basically, yes. and to the level that you're seeing it, it makes me think that it was Rex recreating. And just from my own experience, my father was doing this constantly. Um, my father did it part as a way to sort of redirect his his sexual sadistic energy because he said murdering was really difficult and he got almost the same hit off of just recreating these crimes and making these dolls um, and making Polaroids and dressing up in bondage. That's something my father did. We don't know, Oh, you know, where Rex's uh, 
getting off his front, for lack of a better word. Um, Well, I'm sure he was. Uh, Greg, wouldn't you see this doll being interesting to use and when you were doing an interrogation of him, like you would often do some proactive things that, uh, I remember one of your cases that you had something there on the table, a stick or a baton or something that would be a reminder and would uh, uh, watch the person you're interviewing. Yeah, it's certainly possible. Um, to do that once we, we know more about it. Um, and if we think it's significant, then yes, we could employ that as, as part of the uh, intro to the uh, interviewer interrogation <coughs> to see if we could get some, some reaction from him, uh, you know, about that. The other thing that, you know, that will, I, I think will come out will be because the clothing and, and personal possessions are missing from the victims. Did he maintain those? And this is part of the fantasy, reliving the crime, uh, looking at the victim's jewelry, clothing, um, uh, all of that. Now, we know some of those keep the, the, those items for a long period of time. Others keep it just for a period of time and then get rid of it. But certainly the search will go to that and trying to link anything like that back to the, uh, uh, back to the victims as well. Hmm. Um, Wade Gregorian, uh, and is this your grandchild? They they made a comment, and I don't know if they're being facetious or real. But uh, Wade Gregorian, I have a question for the guests. Uh, have we ever seen a serial killer that intentionally switches up their mo and victim selection in order to throw off the police? But first, is it your grandchild? Yes, it is my grandson. Hey, Wade, welcome. Where have you been before, Wade? Your your grandmother is always on. She's awesome, by the way. Uh, and uh, do serial killers try to throw people off? Well, they certainly try to throw people off. Whether they actually switch their uh, MO is interesting. Uh, not sure they would change their victim selection if it's in the service of the uh, ritual and what they're playing out. But at any rate, interesting. <laughs> there he is. He's gone. <laughs> Maybe Greg wants to take that one. Have you ever seen them change their MO to uh, throw people off, Greg? Uh, Well, I've certainly seen them change their MO if it's done to throw people off. For example, the uh, Bernardo case in uh, Canada that I worked, um, the first victim he had dismembered went to great lengths uh, to dismember the body, put the body in cement blocks, and then dump the cement blocks in the reservoir. The next victim, he just rolled out along the side of the road. So completely different disposals. Um, and it was primarily because, um, as, it ter- as it turned out, um, you can imagine dismembering a body is a lot of work. It's a mess. It's, you know, putting in cement blocks, going all And he's saying, well, if they're going to find it anyway, I'm not going to go to all that trouble. So the next one, he just rolled out uh, along the side of the road. So those things look entirely different but it's the same uh, offender. I had another offender that went from New Orleans up to Idaho, but he was doing all kinds of crimes. He was robbing, uh, he was raping, he was murdering, uh, all different types of crimes, but all the same offenders. So we can't get too much tunnel vision on, he's got to do it just this way all the time because um, you know they're, they're equal opportunity criminals, uh, criminally versatile, uh, doing rapes, robberies, and murders. So. Uh, you know, anything's possible. I don't see Rex as that kind of a guy uh, doing a lot of, you know, raping, robbing and doing this thing. I think he's much more targeted to these sexual homicides that uh, 
that we're seeing. And it'll be interesting to timeline him and get the background and see what else uh, can be linked. Greg, do you, do you recall a, um, a serial killer of his size and stature? I mean, as I joke, I mean, he is six foot six, but he appears to be six foot six in every direction. He must have used that uh, yeah. when terrorizing these women, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, well, it would be, yeah, for sure. Uh, six, I, I've heard uh, six, six and 275, which sounds about right, um, you know, from, from the, uh, the photos. Uh, yeah, I think he would, uh, you know, his, his anger would certainly be there in, in, in the rage and then the ability to, to carry that off. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting cases uh, was the victim, uh, Miss, Miss Castello, who was apparently involved in a, a trick role with him where, um, it, by that I mean uh, um, he went, to, uh, paid, got to her home allegedly to have sex, and then her alleged boyfriend came in and was outraged and, and ran him off, but she'd already got the money. I've seen this. This is not uncommon in prostitution, the trick roll, where they, they bring a guy in and get his money, and then something goes wrong, and the sex never happens, and they keep the money. Well, that certainly would have outraged uh, Rex, uh, no doubt. Um, and, of course, he came back and, um, uh, you know, and killed her, uh, you know, later. So uh, you, you can have different motives, I think, in different Different things, but I think that would have been an extra added uh, issue for him to have been uh, played like that. And Greg, is it me or do I feel like every time a serial killer is captured within 24, 48 hours, they find a storage unit and they found one here? Is that yeah. part of the uh, is that part of the MO? Two storage units? Carries. Not uncommon at all. Uh, yeah, they. Yeah, it's not uncommon um, uh, to do that. But yeah, basically they. They keep these items. They may have this place under their control where they keep things, and um, so it's not uncommon. You always want to look for that, obviously, when you have a case like this. Uh, go ahead, Carrie. Oh well, back to the mo changing mo. So my dad, his his eight that were in Wichita, which was his hunting grounds, he um, did home invasions mainly during the day, um, and then left the bot. He did his. BTK, bind, torture, kill, for lack of a better word, inside the houses. And he left his victims inside the house, and he used the house as his cover to do what he wanted to do, um, sometimes for several hours. Um, he changed his, not his victim profile, but his his MO with the two that were in Park City. So you're talking about northern suburbs of Wichita, when he decided to murder Mrs. Hedge and Mrs. Davis, Mrs. Hedge lived seven houses down from us. Now he didn't want them narrowing that one down to BTK. Plus everyone had thought, well, BTK was a 1970s thing and here it had been eight years. And so he did cut her phone line, which he was known for. But then he, after he, he hid in her house, which was new. And then he removed her body and he took her to our church and he played dress up with her there in Polaroids. Then he moved her out to the country. And so he dumped her to remove some of that evidence. And it took them a couple weeks to find her. And then he did this again. And so he, his ninth one in Wichita, he left her afternoon there. That was a rather quick one. He left her in her house. He went back to work, came home, had dinner with us. Um, the 10th one, then again, um, he, he moved her and he moved her around twice. And then he didn't like how she looked when she was decayed. So he put a mask on her. Um, and both of those, he used Boy Scout and Cub Scout campouts as alibis. Um, 
And it took him two or three weeks to find Mrs. Davis in the country. Um, so in those two, my dad has said he specifically altered his, his means and motive and stuff basically to hide that it was BTK. And they, when they arrested my father, they did not arrest him on the two. I actually turned him in on the, on the neighbor lady in the first hour. Um, you know, I was wondering about Rex, like say he did all of these, maybe, maybe those four mean something special to him more significant. And maybe the other ones don't, or like, I just, it's so altered how he's treating them. So if, if he's done all of these, there's a very significance in how he's, he's treating his victims. Um, that's why I just, I don't know right now. Um, and uh, Katie Verderamo, we can get back to Carrie's question hmm. there. If, you know, the four were, for whatever reason, treated differently. But um, I heard it was a traditional Icelandic doll, which I have heard from, and his wife is of Iceland, uh, Icelandic heritage. Uh, and then we go to this comment, which I've also seen reported. Uh, Rex uh, did say his father was an aerospace engineer, very meticulous. K.H. Walker says, I grew up with an engineer, Dad, and they can drive you crazy. Um, when you're doing your research, would you want to look into his lineage, uh, see what his dad did for a profession? Um, if he was, in fact, an aerospace engineer, maybe he was incredibly rigid. And uh, do you think that could have uh, formed his personality or brought this um, primal instinct of his out to kill. Well, certainly our parents' uh, occupation does tell us something about the way they are going to uh, uh, treat their children, and I think that is interesting. But also, look at his his uh, occupation as a um, um, architect. Architect, right. So, in a way, he's doing some engineering kinds of things. He's very detailed. I'm sure that he keeps careful notes and, and things. You would expect that. If there are any writings, you're always going to want to see also what he, I think they have already identified where he would go on his um, uh, websites to, to check out. And uh, But at any rate, I think that the father, uh, I think it's more important that the father died and what he died of when he the, uh, Rex was so young. Was just before adolescence, which is a very important period of um, a young boy's life. I don't know whether engineering fathers drive them crazy. I don't know about that. But uh, uh, certainly the more he's rigid and so forth, it also would be important of what his relationship was with his mother, with the father and, and mother. Was there any kind of uh, domestic violence or anything that he witnessed? All of those things would be really, really important to get hold of. And Anne, this is interesting from Janet, who's a friend of the show. Uh, what's with the house? So this is in a nice section of Massapequa Park where everyone's home is very nicely groomed, landscape, American flags. Um, his was um, really dilapidated. Did he keep it such a mess to keep people out? He had an interior decorator, seriously. I guess he said that at one point. But uh, what do you make of a very messy home? Is that something that we see often in these cases? Well, that is important, right? And uh, Greg can tell us, I think that they always used to comment on um, what kind of a car people would drive, whether it be messy or, or whatever. And uh, that would be important in this case, too. But in terms of the house, I'm not so sure it was to keep people out, but uh, it certainly did. I understand there was some comment that kids wouldn't even go there for candy at Halloween. So the other, um, that says something, I think, and, and how it 
fits in or doesn't fit in. It certainly was his childhood home. I've read that, that he never moved out. Um, that's rather important. And he is an architect, so you would think he would design his own home, but evidently not. Uh, yeah, Greg, so he's I, lived, no, I was going to say, he's lived in that house for all 59 years of his life. He bought it from mm -hmm. his aerospace father, uh, the engineer. Um, yeah. What do you make of that, that he's lived there? And what do you make of the fact that it was kind of a dump uh, described as, as such? Well, the little important, I think, that he wanted his childhood home doesn't necessarily, um, a lot of people like that, but I bet he doesn't upkeep it, he doesn't change it in any architectural. And the other thing is, is he uh, still living out as adolescence, uh, something there that he's just not up, not he's not growing up. He's not um, doing what most people do. So that sets him apart, I think, from other people. There's a lot of, he really has a, even though he's in some degree socially competent, he is certainly not in a lot of other ways. He's got a very um, two type of, of uh, lifestyle. Hmm. Uh, Greg McCrary, what do you make of it? Well, I, I think from an investigative perspective, it, it, it's helpful in a way that he's lived there his entire life. Uh, that, And then look for the storage areas that we've talked about, because if there's any evidence, it's going to be there. Uh, if he's maintained things, it's going to be there. And he isn't a guy that's lived all around the country, and we're going to have to go hunting around the country to look for other areas where he may have maintained evidence or whatever. So investigatively, then it becomes very, uh, I think, significant. Um, uh, that uh, you want to look very carefully. And I think one of the comments was, you know, you should tear the house down. Well, that's going back to the Paul Bernardo case in Canada. That's what they did. They took it apart brick by brick, board by board, and, and eventually leveled the house. Um, but uh, because there was evidence uh, that had been maintained in there as well. So um, go, real quick, I'm going to get you in one sec, but uh, Kim uh, Caldegaron here, um, 8672, uh, Greg, is numbers that Rex Hureman used more than once for phones and false date of birth. Is it significant? No major historical event on that day. He was 8 in 72. Dad died when he was 11, so it's not that. Uh, he's giving himself a younger age, but uh, Greg, anything to read into that? And uh, again, I want to be careful not to overinterpret this stuff, but for whatever reason, I mean, we probably all do the same thing uh, without giving away any of my um, uh, passcodes, but I have certain numbers I use that are significant to me and to nobody else. So um, it could be could be something like that. I, I really I really don't know. Uh, Carrie, go ahead. Um, I, well, a few points about the house. One. From a victim's advocacy standpoint, um, people are saying they want to tear and rip this part, this house to shreds. I, I understand we need the evidence and we need all of it, but we got to keep in mind that, you know, his wife, that's her home. Um, my mom was sent out of a home with nothing. Um, she literally had to ask the SWAT people, detectives, uh, can you please go get my purse? Cause I have asthma. I'm going to need my medicine. Cause otherwise I'm having asthma attack on you people. Um, literally like, I think my family had to go buy her clothes. We had to send my uncles back. Um, we were up in Northern Kansas, like hunkering down. My mom was basically moving around for months with family, trying to keep a mortgage on, you know, that house and having to pay rent. 
Um, eventually it was bulldozed down, which is something, you know, we see, we're going to see in Idaho for it's, it's, it's like, because otherwise it's going to get torn apart and sold on eBay. But you've got to understand like his wife, somebody needs to go in there and get her stuff and get it to her that she needs just her basic needs or set her up with a new wardrobe. I mean, that's the victim reality here. Now, from a standpoint, yes, let's go take everything out because what happened, we're finding, um, and I can't go into much detail right now, but like we're finding with my father's cases, not everything was collected. And when we were talking earlier about these, these creepers, critters, guys like my dad and Rex, my dad kept victims clothes and then would move them around. Um, now he got rid of a lot of things, but he had kept things. Um, unfortunately we're finding out in my father's cases, there was evidence was never collected. I literally saw it in my shed months later at the time. I didn't realize it was evidence. If I had, I would have raised every flag I could have. Um, so now like there's stuff that's been lost. Right. And so you've got like, if Rex has anything literally could be evidence in that house and could have DNA on it. Um, so that's, there's just, there's two sides. And then the third side about, about a messy house. I, I was recently speaking with a special victims law enforcement, um, literally for, for my own personal reasons, um, that'll come out later. Um, I'm literally ongoing, still learning things about my own life here, guys. So, um, he said sometimes these families that have these multi levels of abuse going on, um, they have a tendency to make everything look really pretty, which is what my parents did, like actual control freaks to like the manicured flowers and dressing up at church. And then we had all these really messy closets and all these places with my dad hid stuff and he carpentered like spots under floorboards and he had a false wall in a shed. Now, Rex probably has the same exact skills, so I would imagine he's done a lot of carpentry and false, false stuff. Um, but interestingly, Rex did not keep his house up, and when Anne is talking about that being his childhood home, I think he's trying to tell us something about his childhood. Hmm. Uh, Jamie Ferrer, don't be bummed. You're here now, so it's all good. Lowe Stevens says, as a five foot two woman, he's my nightmare. Again, estimated to be about six feet, six uh, inches tall. Greg, um, so there are reports he was also taunting uh, the victim's families. This is per the Suffolk County DA, Roy Tierney. Uh, he also said he was compulsively searching pictures of the victims, um, but not only pictures of the victims, pictures of their relatives, their sisters, their children. He was trying to locate those individuals. In a 14-month period, he had over 200 searches pertaining to the Gilgo investigation not only was he looking at investigative insight, he was trying to figure out how is the task force using cell phones to try to figure out what happened, uh, how, what are the developments with regard to the task force. This guy was an investigator in his own right. Is this what you would expect? And it's particularly scary and frightening that he was looking at the victim's family. Was he doing that um, so he'd have some sort of collateral to hang over their head potentially? Let's break that down. Um, first of all, I, I teach uh, homicide schools. I talk to homicide detectives. In fact, I did the in-service training for NYPD homicide for a number of years. And the question I would ask is, well, who has the most vested interest in your case? 
And the detectives would say, well, I did. It's my case, right? I mean, I've got the most vested interest. The answer is you have the second most vested interest in your case. The most vested interest belongs to the offender. Uh, he, he's got everything at risk, right? It's his life that's hanging on the line. And high-functioning guys like Rex will do this. Uh, they will follow the investigation very closely, follow the media. Uh, you may well have potential offenders following this podcast, not unusual, uh, to understand how police work and, and how people get caught so they, they don't get caught. And this is why when we're um, talking to the police and scripting um, public relations statements, we always say, keep in mind you're talking to the killer. And don't say anything you don't want the killer to know uh, because we don't want to educate that offender as to what's going on investigatively because, and Rex is a good example, they're, they're trying desperately to find out. Uh, and they've linked his IP address to their, um, the Gilgo News or whatever it was. I forget the site about the, uh, uh, this particular investigation. So, yeah. And, and now the second part was with the victim's families. That could be more of what we saw with him wanting to torture these victims or to identify them so he could harass them in some way because we know he was, you know, he was doing that. And that goes to the sadistic nature of, of who he is. In other words, they get off by um, the victim's reaction to being tortured. So he'd want to call the families and tell them that he killed them and maybe explain how he tortured the victims so he could get a reaction from them. They get off on the reaction uh, to the infliction of psychological or physical trauma. So it could be, uh, it certainly could be part of that. And uh, Anne, you see this comment here. I've not uh, confirmed this, but I believe it to be true. Uh, he has another home, uh, hopefully not near you, Anne, but in Massachusetts. And I know he was uh, uh, looking to retire with his brother um, in a rural part of South Carolina. And his brother, I believe his name is Craig Hureman, uh, a neighbor in South Carolina, said that the brother Craig is a hothead and came after him with some kind of tool, tried to hit him over an argument. Uh, so this might, you know, trickle into other, and I'm not saying the homicide part, but uh, this personality trait of, uh, you know, being triggered uh, could, could be leaking into other family members as well. But I wanted to get back. You mentioned this. Um, so neighbors reacted to this. Um, some One neighbor said they're just regular neighbors. It's crazy. Anyone would think the same thing, just mind boggling. But others said that they were creepy as creepy gets, uh, refused to let their kids trick or treat there. One father did it anyway, brought back a bag of candy. The wife said, where do you get it? From Rex's house. They had to throw it out immediately. Um, do you typically find, if there is anything typical about this at all, that these types of serial killers um, blend in society? Like Carrie's father blended in really well. I think he was even president of his church, if I'm right, at one point. Um, or are they outliers? Are they these creepy guys um, who, again, are, uh, you know, sort of, excommunicated from their own, you know, street and neighborhoods? Well, I think it depends on these, the, the, what they present to the various uh, uh, levels they work with. I remember one offender that said he had three different presentations. One was to his family, one was to his uh, workplace, and one was to the community. So they can slip in and out of these personas and, you um, uh, and can fool, certainly can fool a lot of people. I think that the ones that 
wanted to stay away from him. That made sense. And I think we saw this in the Idaho suspect where you had people saying one thing and others saying another. But certainly for this this suspect, it um, you, you've got a mix. You've got a mix. And maybe the way he saw the, the, the neighbors, the different neighbors, he would react differently. Uh, and depending, um, you know, that it just tells you more about him, that he's not one presentation. And that that's important for when they interrogate him, that they get the right person that can reach him in a certain way. And um, I know that that is, it, you know, would it matter if it's a female that interviews him or a male or two people? I don't know whether Greg has any any suggestions on that, but all of that can be important if you're really trying to get a confession. Not only confession, I think they've got so much evidence, but the other thing is what was behind all of this? How did it develop? That's what we really learned so that we can begin to see when were the red flags? When could have this been prevented, if, if at all? And I want to ask Greg about something kind of specific here. Um, by the way, K.H. Walker echoing the sentiments, the fact that his dad died when he was only 11 is important. I don't doubt that. Um, so, Greg, there's a woman that has uh, come out publicly. She was uh, from Westchester County, a young, attractive woman. Um, and she says that uh, Rex Hewerman casually chatted her up uh, about the murders months before his arrest and laughed when she said anyone could be a mass murderer. They were hanging out at this bar. He brings up the grisly uh, crimes uh, as they're at a place called the Big Apple Bar. Um, And he uh, asked if she liked podcasts and if she liked true crime. Um, And it goes on and on. And then she said, obviously, that she is completely freaked out that this is a guy who's now been arrested and says he appeared to be a serial killer to her. She's stunned, but not surprised. Um, again, I've asked this question a lot tonight, but is this what you'd expect from Rex Hewerman to, to chat up an attractive young woman and start asking all sorts of questions about these murders and these crimes? Yeah, uh, to a degree, yes. Um, um, this is uh, sometimes I refer to it as sort of duping delight. In other words, they get a delight over bringing this out. They have a secret. Uh, they know more than anybody. They have this great secret that they're keeping, and they're lauding it over everyone else. And if she says something like, oh, the you know, killer could be anybody, and he's thinking, yeah, it's me. You know, <laughs> I'm right here, and you don't even know it, but I know it. And this is the great joy that they have is they're keeping this secret from from the world. And uh, Therefore, that, that fuels the narcissism, narcissism that they feel smarter than everybody else, that everybody's afraid of this guy and he's doing this. And yet here he is right in the middle of all this and nobody knows. And it's, it's a rush, uh, a rush for them to do that sort of thing. Uh, Carrie uh, Bellafin comments, I bet this monster has so many more victims and now his photographs are being shown all around the world. By the way, I get yelled at every day, a few times a day. Uh, doesn't this guy have to go uh, through the court system? Yes, he does. And yes, he is presumed innocent. But there's a mountain of evidence against this guy already. But yes, uh, I'm going to get to his lawyer statements because I think that's important as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things that they say he was into in his searches, Carrie, is uh, torture porn. Um, I know it's a weird topic to broach about your parent, but was your father into such material? Uh, what do you make of this? My my father made his own porn. So they're like 
all right, this is inappropriately joking, but like there wasn't a level of porn to satisfy my father. So he made his own, right? Mm. Like he drew a couple, we have a couple hundred bondage drawings of women in bondage. Now we're trying to link those to crimes. Um, we have recreations with Polaroids. Um, both, if you Google my dad, it's on you. Sorry, it's going to wreck your life. But there's 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 public, you know, Polaroids that have been released of my father and his varying recreations of bondage. Now, you got to remember my father was caught in 2005, so he was using, like, an older computer. I didn't have a computer until 96, and so my father really was not that Internet savvy. Um, I imagine if my father was still... Uh, out and about today he would be more like a rex with burner phones and online in these groups and um do doing what rex is doing now you have to remember they're adapting with technology so my father was using classified ads back in the 70s and he still was in 2004 to communicate with the media we were talking about that um my father did call in one of his homicides and he used the word homicide which was weird um it, you know, most average people aren't going to call in a homicide using that word, but we don't think my dad ever communicated with families. I think that's an interesting side of like extra levels of torture of sort of getting off on torturing as Greg was saying. Um, yeah, there's, there's like dark black market stuff where you can get all sorts of these things that Rex was looking for. Um, basically it's like, you could never satisfy these, these guys. Um, they will, um, constantly be seeking something out to satisfy that urge. And it's, it's like, it's continuous when you're, when you're talking about, um, it's constant. They're constantly seeking those gratifications, constantly seeking out that next high and trying to satisfy it sometimes by not murdering, um, or recreating that murder. Um, and Burgess, that's super interesting. Um, I always, wonder and like what but it's not my question but it just came to me like what part of serial killers are sexual in nature and what part are perverse i'm thinking you know men naturally as they get older lose their testosterone does that do serial killers tend to kill less as they grow older because they don't have the same sexual urges or is it all about the perversity and the depravity of committing these crimes well one thing we looked at and we don't talk too much about but there is a sexual dysfunction that happens in some rapists and some murderers. And so you always wonder that and wonder if there's been a, a especially that the type of uh, woman that's uh, targeted in this case and whether they make any comment on the performance, if you will, of a male, whether that can ag agitate or make them angrier and so forth. But the, the, you're absolutely correct that the physiological aspect of uh, hormonal uh, does just does decrease obviously he is 59 and that would be it might be a factor uh, again that would be so it's so important to get that timeline and to see when he does what as best you can because then you can look developmentally at where he's at and I, I just think that's a great question to see whether that played any role in any of his um, uh, murders and Anne, I want to come back to you on, on this too from Jasmine D. Uh, what's your reaction to that YouTube interview Rex did talking about his job as an architect? I have the quote here in this YouTube video from just last year. Uh, it's interesting. It came out in 2022, right when the task force was formed. 
and uh, maybe Greg will have a comment on it after. Some people believe the task force set him up with this. Uh, but in that uh, video on YouTube, he says, I'm an architect. I'm an architect consultant. I'm a troubleshooter, born and raised on Long Island, then working in Manhattan since 87. When a job that should have been routine suddenly becomes not routine, I get the phone call. Uh, and is he uh, bristling his feathers like a peacock there, letting everyone know he's the man? He is the man. Absolutely. You've nailed it. He really is. And that was a very interesting interview. People should go back and look at that. They, there's one of some psychologists also would uh, did body image reaction and, and would stop the interview and say, see what he did kind of thing. It's, it's very instructive. If anyone is interested, I forget when he did it, but he, how many years ago he did it? It was February, 2022, February, 2022. Oh, okay. Right. One. Okay. And it's, it's a company yeah. called Bonjour Realty. You can find it. Maybe you can't find it anymore, but it was on YouTube. Um, and again, some people speculate that Bonjour Realty is really the FBI. Um, maybe we'll get Greg's take on that in a second, but Greg, I also want to ask you. Um, so he used seven burner phones um, one, I believe, is in the possession of law enforcement. If you were going to speak to him, uh, would you say something to him like, you know, maybe not in, a, in an antagonistic way, but, you know, you're a clever guy. Why did you have to use burner phones? Couldn't you have gotten away with a regular cell phone? Um, but why was he using these burner phones? He was just obviously covering his tracks. Right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he had fake email accounts and, uh, attached to these burner phones, and he had a whole network. Um uh, that the investigators finally followed that kind of spider web of one burner phone to another, to a fake email account, to how that's used to contact uh, potential sex workers and, and all of that. But then he got very sloppy at the end because he was using his own phone to um, check the voicemail on some of the burner phones or to check into these uh, alternate email accounts uh, using his own phone, or his own IP address, or his own phone. So uh, I think we see this over time that the narcissism becomes their downfall. They think they're smarter than everyone else. They get away from it. He's taken all these precautions. He thinks, um, but as time goes on, he thinks he's invulnerable, invincible, and then they get sloppy, and uh, uh, and that's what uh, that's what gets them uh, caught uh, at the end. So I think we see that in. Uh, um, you know, in this case as well. Yeah, and we're going to start to wrap in just a few minutes. A couple more quick things, but Sir Madam, Greg, right back to you. Uh, he or she, Sir Madam, it's tough to tell. Uh, all the bodies will eventually be uh, linked to the same suspect. All appear to be sex workers, and all found in the same area. Uh, too much of a coincidence, but um, you can respond to that. I was going to ask you about this Chevrolet uh, Avalanche. So uh, you talked about this, and it's common among sex workers uh, Rex was duped at one point. He went uh, to meet this woman and was basically, it was a ruse. He was scared away. They tried to take his money. Um, it was the last uh, time Amber Costello was seen, but I think she gave a description about this car, which was eventually traced down uh, to South Carolina. Um, I mean, I guess it goes without saying that the description she offered uh, was critical in this case, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what I mean, this is how investigations work. You look for that one good solid lead and, and one lead leads to another. And most of the time, what you're really trying to do is eliminate suspects because 
um, your chance of stumbling onto the right guy right off the go is very, very unlikely. So you're in the process of eliminating uh, suspects, and I think they were probably trying to eliminate him, and they just kept tying him into this thing. And then you start to get excited uh, when you can't eliminate him, and every lead you cover just begins to tighten tighten this thing down. So, um, and there isn't any experienced investigator out there, myself included, who hasn't fallen in love with the wrong suspect. Uh, that you're sure this has to be the guy. It's got to be. Everything fits, and then you wash them out. It's very deflating. You have to start from ground zero and build, build it all up again. But here, in this case, I'm sure they're trying to eliminate him. Uh, a guy with no criminal history, an architect, nice guy. Uh, come on, let's let's just you know rule him out. And the more they looked, the more they ruled him in. And then here we are today. So, again, good police work. Uh, Ann, I wanted to get your take. Meanwhile, Moan Bent, what a fantastic panel. So glad SCS invites Carrie. She is always welcome for input in these cases. Uh, Ann and uh, Greg can feel free as well as Carrie to uh, two final things I wanted to ask you about. These bodies seem to be wrapped in burlap. Um, Mm -hmm. And he also talked um, as an architect uh, about how his favorite tool was a cabinet maker's hammer. So these two things, the burlap, and the hammer, although he appears to have choked these women to death, but uh, any significance in burlap? I think the burlap is very important because there's a lot of other choices he could have had. So the burlap means something significant. Uh, I think I read that it was used for duck hunting or wrapping ducks or something. But uh, if you look at it, the picture I saw, they're pretty wide uh, cutting, so it's not thin that you'd expect if it was going to be ligature, but evidently use that just to bind them. And isn't that where one of the, some of the hair is found? So that that is, uh, even though it's significant to him or maybe signature as, as the agents would say, that it is a downfall for him. That's where they, he didn't realize that the hairs could be put on that. So, and if it's the hairs from the white, it's going to be very important find out how, how that fits in. It doesn't have to imply her being there, but it certainly implies that he had something of hers, perhaps. Right. Yeah, secondary transfer uh, yes. uh, is what we're really talking about, I think, with a wife's hair, um, you know, being there. And then, of course, his hair was identified at one point uh, uh, as well. So, again, all this forensic evidence, the behavioral evidence is um, you know, makes for a very tight case. And again, what you were saying, Joel, he has the presumption of innocence. Granted, uh, make the government prove their case. But what I've seen so far looks looks pretty good. Yeah, and, and Craig, uh, care to comment on the burlap? Uh, do you think it is as significant as Ann points out that he could have been using something other than burlap? Oh, absolutely. Uh, three out of the four uh, were in burlap. So is that, you know, some psychologically significant thing or is it just something he happened to have uh, that he used, um, uh, you know, we don't really know, but it would be unique. And again, it's one of these things that links those cases together, um, you know, for sure. So just from the linkage standpoint, it's uh, significant. And then from the forensic point too, because uh, apparently hairs were snagged in that and they were able to recover. So, so that's all good stuff. Uh, Elizabeth Daniels, and we will start to wrap. It's really intriguing that he works meticulously as an architect and quite purposefully has let his house look like a dump inside and out. Is he perseverating on his traumatic past uh, in that house? Uh, Anne, you want to take that one? Well, it could be that he doesn't dare 
change anything. Uh, we don't know, but there is something that his childhood home that certainly, I mean, everybody can have, uh, many people can have uh, positive memories, but they can also have traumatic memories. So there's something that uh, that house is very significant and that these storage rooms were important. And, and it could be that, that he had kept things in there and just didn't want to move. We don't know. But that home would be hopefully somebody will be able to interview him about uh, those kinds of things. Um. One last thing here, uh, Kerry, to you. Um, he did plan, I said this earlier, he planned to retire to rural South Carolina. Uh, property owned by him and his brother in Chester, South Carolina, are barely visible from the unpaved roads uh, with no trespassing signs are, are up there. Keep out, no trespassings, no warrant, no entry. Again, uh, a neighbor there said, I keep my distance from the brother, Craig. I think I think he's crazy as a bed bug. He's told uh, apparently this guy Craig Hewerman uh, went after this neighbor with some sort of tool. But um, Kerry, was your dad uh, in speaking to him after the fact? Was he always looking over his shoulder? It's interesting to me that this guy is planning his retirement. Like, okay, I'm just going to go. You know, I've killed, I've murdered, I've been a good architect. Now I'm just going to go settle down in South Carolina. Um, he had to have been. Uh, obviously looking over the shoulder and living in a bit of fear, uh, even though he's a big, you know, you know, burly guy. Uh, what are your thoughts? My dad is still claiming retirement inside his cave. He calls it like Alcavera. He's a Kansas Pisces. He's changed his name now that he's in his, his solitary cell and given himself a new name. He's constantly saying he's retiring. He's 77. Um, it's, I'm sorry, my I've had a long day and I'm getting silly, but like these guys do not retire, right? Like their sexual urges go down and they they get to the point where they physically cannot necessarily murder as easy, so they find other outlets. But my guess is he had grand plans for South Carolina. And honestly, if he's been traveling down there, we got to look there. Um, we got to look in Massachusetts. We got to look in Vegas. I heard he was a poker player out in Vegas. Um, I'm seeing all sorts of things pop up. There's four buried in Atlantic City um, that need looked at that were buried very specifically, um, very strategically off the side of the road. You know, we got to look at those for wrecks. There's the Bedford, New Bedford murders. Um, I'm hearing those probably aren't his, but they could fit in his timeline. There's so much here. Um, and when the avalanche, I'm hearing that his first, there, so here's the thing in the investigation, like there's two, there were only two series of Chevy avalanches made. They were trucks, pickup trucks, right? So like if, if Amber reported that years ago, how many Chevy avalanches out on Long Island were there with, with hulking six foot six men, you know, like, like, I guess in hindsight, we, we got to go back. I think you got to go back in hindsight and, and learn and take the ego away and look at everything and go, okay, oop, there, there it was like, there was that piece buried all those years ago. Of course, in hindsight, it's easy to do that, but I'm hearing that maybe that first, uh, first edition avalanche was down in South Carolina. Did he put it down there to hide it? Because people are reporting that there, it was towed from there. And then he had a later edition in Long Island. So like, you're think this guy has been thinking ahead for years and hiding stuff. And that's interesting because yeah, I, you know, I thought South Carolina was super random until I found out he was planning to retire there. 
A little, little bit here says, and thank you for the super sticker, uh, best panel. I would love to meet Dr. Burgess. I always feel blessed when I get to watch her and Carrie too. Uh, now that I've turned my book manuscript in, my next thing I'm going to work on trying to get you to meet Ann Burgess. We're going to try to figure out a way to do that as well as Dr. Gr uh, Gary Ricardo, uh, Greg McCrary. We'll get all these guys, Carrie. Uh, we're going to figure out a way to do that for uh, STS Nation. Uh, this is an interesting comment. Oh, I just skipped over it. Uh, let me see if I can get back to it real quick. Uh, right here from uh, Cohactus. Sounds like he killed when his wife was away, so maybe the doll and recreations kept him going the rest of the months when he couldn't kill. Uh, for those who do not know Carrie Rawson, uh, now you know, as they say. Uh, she is the daughter of the uh, notorious serial killer BTK, but so much more. Uh, she's an author. She's written a book about it called The Serial Killer's Daughter. I know she's working on a second book. Uh, she's been featured on Dateline specials. She's really a student of criminology and a great person, um, and we're super happy to have her. Uh, Carrie, uh, what happens next uh, in this investigation? What are, you looking, uh, what are you looking for? What are you anticipating? Uh, the chatter publicly and private is this thing is not, is just beginning, unfortunately. I mean, I guess from an investigative and victim standpoint, like, let's get them cleared. Like, if he, whoever he's harmed, let's get those cleared. So I think that ball is just beginning to roll. I think from, like, his family standpoint, they're just in for a very long haul here um, with the media. I think, I think this is going to be the story for a long time to come, and I really do hope basically anywhere this man has been from say the ages of 18 to 59 investigators are reopening their cold cases like now and digging up any evidence they have and hopefully they have it and uh and i love it your grandson continues to uh comment i think most of the time they're diagnosed with some sort of antisocial personality disorder or psychopathy uh sounds like uh the apple has not fallen far uh from the tree um I love having Agent Greg McCrary on. Again, uh, the, a special episode I did with him about uh, the serial killer Jack Unterweger. It's a phenomenal story. Uh, that comes out July 24th. Greg began at the FBI in 1969. Uh, he's authored numerous publications, including The Unknown Darkness, Profiling the Predators Among Us uh, with Dr. Catherine Ramsland of BT. Uh, BTK fame. Also, a special shout out to Joe Jackalone, who left us early, but he's a retired NYPD sergeant. Um, Greg, to you, thanks again for coming on. Uh, we appreciate okay. it. Uh, what should we be, What should we be looking for? Uh, what are the next uh, developments? Do you believe well, in this case? Yeah. No. As I said, um, you know, earlier, this is the beginning of the next phase, and they're going to be timelining him from the beginning all the way through, and trying to link him. Uh, to any other cases that, that may be around. So we're at the early stages. Um, yeah, you know, the, the thing about the search of the house, the house is a crime scene uh, at this point. So it's going to be searched thoroughly. Uh, those other areas, the property in South Carolina is going to be searched. They're searching a storage area in Amityville. All that stuff has to be done in the timeline. So this is, this is uh, an ongoing story. She is a living legend, literally named a living legend in 2016. Her name is Dr. Ann Burgess. She teaches at the Boston College School of Nursing. She's written the book, uh, A Killer by Design, Murderers, Mindhunters, and My Quest to Decipher the Criminal Mind. 
Uh, the show Mindhunter on Netflix is loosely based on her work and some of the work that Greg McCrary did. Uh, Dakota Fanning, who I just found out is, I forgot, uh, what is it? What show is that? It's uh, whatever show it is. She's making a doc, Hannah Montana. That's what I was thinking about. Yeah. She's making a documentary about Ann Burgess. So, uh, you know, when you're getting a bunch of documentaries, you've left your mark. Um, and uh, obviously, you've uh, got a great grandson, Wade. I'm psyched to we'll get him on. I guess uh, we'll have him as a guest on the show. But uh, same question to you. Uh, what are you looking for next year? What are you keeping your eyes peeled for? I think there's going to be a lot of information that we can gain from talking with the victims' families. If they're, first of all, from a, a standpoint of helping them now that the at least the four victims that were found, um, to give them a lot of support and help as they now put into another phase, if you will, of their grief reaction. But then also, if they can get some information from the uh, wife uh, or the daughter that can start to, as at Carrie, I think has so well said, that there is a period when obviously they're probably going to say he didn't do it. We don't know. But at some point, they may be able to shed some light on what was going on, what was the life like. Even the brother, now that you've mentioned that, you wonder what the home life was like if you have someone that's so uh, trigger happy, so to speak. So I think that, again, the, the victims, the families, let's see what we can learn from them as well as what um, in the investigation turns up. If I might add one more uh, thing. As far as the victims, uh, we've seen that he was calling, as we talked about earlier, to the victims' families. Uh, what we've done in other cases, and I think it might have been done here, but again, I'm not on the inside, so I don't know, that they would have been reporting this, hopefully, that they were in touch with the killer. This can be very um, uh, uh, almost therapeutic for the victims' family. They get involved in the investigation. They're regaining some control. Now, uh, they're helping the police. They're moving this thing forward. And I, I would guess strongly that's that was what was in play, that the police were aware of this. They're working with the families, uh, and they've recorded those conversations, um, and it's there. It's going to be evidence, I think, that we're going to see come out. And, again, it has a therapeutic um, benefit to the family when they can do something positive uh, in the case to bring this there. So just another thought couple of real quick things before we go. I mentioned uh, a couple of shows ago, uh, I've been using Liquid IV. It's actually in here to help me uh, get over my wedding uh, drink or two that I had last night. Uh, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code STS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code STS at liquidiv.com. Um, and now we're going to get... Uh, to the final moments of the show. Uh, I am not lying this time. I'm going away. I'm going to see where my mother was hidden during World War II uh, in Serbia. I will be back roughly around August 3rd. We're going to have content coming out the whole time, including that show uh, with Agent McCrary, so don't miss it. Uh, the new content will start getting pumped out uh, tomorrow. It won't be live. I'll be back uh, August 3rd. And if you like the content today, please subscribe as a YouTube member or support us on Patreon. Until then... Love you, America. Love you, Boston. Love you, Florida and Wichita and Virginia. Until next time. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and... 
the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. <laughs> 